You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Good morning. Welcome to this special occasion. We're already off to a good start. I think James has already suggested that John is unqualified and I am old. (laughs) The text for the sermon today as we come to the ordination and installation of our brother John Kong as our new pastor of Christian education is Joshua chapter 5 beginning at verse 13 and going through Joshua 6 verse 5. This is uh, the day before the battle of Jericho begins and it is where Joshua meets the commander of the army of the Lord. It is a fascinating and revealing event in Israel's history. Joshua 5.13 to 6.5. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed for you uh, in the uh, bulletin. This is God's Word. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, show us what you would have us learn today from it, and also please show us Jesus, for it is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, leadership uh, is much on our mind uh, these days, political leaders, Judicial leaders, industry leaders, social media leaders. And today we are ordaining and installing a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. Leadership is 
a timely issue, but it's also always an important one. Now, the Bible is not a manual for leadership. The Bible doesn't give you a TED Talk full of catchy phrases and compelling formulas for successful leadership. What the Bible does give you are historical portraits of real leaders, both good and bad. And by looking at those portraits, by studying them, you can discern what godly leadership looks like. The kind of leadership that both depends upon God and honors God. Now, one thing is certain, godly leadership looks different from the leadership taught and valued by the world. In fact, uh, Doug Webster, the former pastor of First Presbyterian Church in San Diego and now professor at Beeson Seminary in Birmingham, Alabama, in a recent uh, wonderful book uh, about ministry, said that what we are doing today ordination, and now I'm quoting, ordination cannot be understood by the world. If it could, then we could simply say leadership is leadership. But until Christ comes again, the way of Jesus is not the way of the world. To be ordained, to be set apart to God's purposes, will contradict the people-pleasing leadership of the world every time. Now, as a way to approach John's ordination today, we're going to look at Joshua in this event, Joshua, who is a godly leader, and we're going to pull out from this encounter with the commander of the army of the Lord three identifying characteristics of a godly leader. And here I'm indebted to uh, some of the insights of uh, Harry Reader a pastor and leader himself in our denomination who has done a lot of writing and teaching uh, on the subject of Christian leadership. And, and here are those uh, identifying characteristics. First, godly leaders are not in command. Second, godly leaders lead out of worship. And then third, godly leaders use methods the world does not value. Godly leaders are not in command, they lead out of worship, and they use methods the world doesn't value. Now while all of this, of course, applies to pastors and elders and deacons, it is also, what we're going to talk about today is also important for every Christian here. Every Christian should have the ability to discern godly leadership from ungodly leadership, and I pray this would help in that process. But more than that, the reality is that most of you are leaders in one context or another, even though you may not be ordained into special office in the church. Certainly in your family, or in a life group, or a prayer group, or Bible study. Maybe you're in a mentor relationship with someone here at the church. Wherever you're a leader, these these principles of godly leadership, these identifying characteristics apply. So first, 
Godly leaders are not in command. Now, all of a sudden, I mean, right away, that sounds strange in our ears, doesn't it? That goes against what we think about leadership. Aren't leaders in command? Aren't leaders take charge kind of people? Some of you here are old enough to remember. James, I'm old enough. Old enough to remember that infamous moment in the unsettling hours after President Reagan was shot. We didn't know what his fate would be. He was in undergoing emergency surgery. When General Alexander Haig, then the Secretary of State, hustled into a hastily called press conference and announced to the nation these now infamous words. As of now, I am in control here in the White House. Now those words set off a firestorm of controversy. And really the controversy settled around the fact that the words weren't constitutional. Secretary of State Haig was actually not in control. We did have a vice president. He was in transit. But they weren't controversial in what they said about leadership, right? Those words certainly expressed what General Haig believed about leadership and what he believed, and I think rightly believed, that that a lot of Americans wanted to hear. That someone strong is in charge. That, we, that there is a, we're not in a leadership vacuum here. There is a leader, he's in charge, he's in control. That's what the world wants from its leaders. But a godly leader actually will not say those words. Look at Joshua here. It's a very interesting confrontation. Isn't he's, he's out there probably scouting, right, the enemy, trying to figure out how he's going to take Jericho. Israel did not have the, the technology to, to defeat a, a walled city like Jericho. And uh, as he's in the process of, 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 you know, out there between his lines and and, and Jericho, he encounters a man who's brandishing a weapon. So this, is, this is a dangerous situation, a drawn sword. And Joshua strides up to him, and his question, are you for us or for our adversaries, is really a challenge. What Joshua is in effect saying is, look, if you're for, if, if, if you're for us, if you're for the Hebrew people, then you submit to me. I'm the leader here. If you're for our adversaries, if you're for Jericho, be prepared to die. That's what he was saying. But when he hears that strange answer to his question, right? Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. And then he hears who this man is, the commander of the army of the Lord. What's the first thing that Joshua says? 
Verse 14. What does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua, as a godly leader, immediately recognized that he was not in charge, that he was not setting the agenda or the priorities here. God was doing that, and Joshua's job was to do what God ordered him to do. Friends, a Christian leader is never at the top of the food chain. A Christian leader is always under authority. And of course, the ultimate authority is God Himself. The truth of the matter is that godly leadership is really following the leader. Jack Miller, the original founder, uh, the founder of the original New Life Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a professor. Uh, at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia wrote this about leadership in a letter. He, wrote, he was writing to a, a missionary who was uh, struggling with, with leadership of his team on the mission field. And, and Jack writes him this letter and here's what he says. How blessed it is just to be a follower of Jesus. Really, isn't being a good follower the very heart of being a leader? And isn't our leadership often lacking just because we have weakened in followership? I know that is my own experience repeatedly. I get overly concerned over how to be a better leader, but Jesus is more concerned about making me a better, more humble follower. Well, I can certainly second what Jack says there. That is uh, my own experience in, in my position. I'm, I'm concerned about being a, a good leader, concerned about always being a better leader, and, and I keep get, getting reminded that really at the heart of my leadership, I need to be a better, more humble follower of Jesus. best way for me, the best way for John, and the best way for you to be a godly leader wherever God has you is to be a better, more humble follower of Jesus. So that's the first characteristic. Godly leaders are not in command. Now let's turn to the second one. Godly leaders lead out of worship. You know, we looked at the first thing that Joshua said when he was confronted by this divine commander. But what was the first thing that Joshua did? He did something before he even said anything. All right, verse 14 again. It was worship, right? The very first thing he did was worship. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. begins to give us a, a, a signal of who this commander is. The, the Hebrews had a, a, a very high sense of God and who he was. They would not bow to a, a mere creature, even an angel. The Hebrew people knew, as we know, that what, 
what deserves our worship is only that which is infinitely higher than you and I are. You and I worship what we value the most, what we recognize as the absolute highest good. And that's what godly leadership emerges out of. It emerges from worship, right? From a heart that has been captured by the superiority and the goodness and the majesty and the beauty and the sovereignty of the Lord. Before we take step one in leadership, we put our faces in the ground before God. It's the fear and the awe of the creature in the presence of the Creator. That's step one in leadership. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really more nuanced than that. You know, in verse 15, the commander says something to Joshua that would have sounded familiar, may have sounded familiar to you, it almost certainly sounded familiar to Joshua because the commander repeated the same words, almost verbatim, that Moses heard from the burning bush. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Now what's going on there? Well, several things I think, but let me just focus on one important thing. One important thing that this whole sandals off the feet order is communicating is that, is that when you worship me, that worship is exclusive. That's what God is saying. You worship and serve me alone. You know, when we think about holiness, we, we often think about a, sort of a moral, pure, moral purity. And that's right. That's, that's an aspect of holiness. But there's another aspect of holiness that, that's actually in play here in an ordination. And that's when, 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 when one is dedicated or set apart for use to God. And it's why you can have, the Bible talks about holy utensils, right? Now, you know, a utensil can't be morally pure, but a utensil can still be holy because it's dedicated to service to the Lord. A, 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 a vessel that is used in the temple, in the worship of the temple, is not going to be used, you know, to cook breakfast, God didn't want Joshua coming before him in his everyday shoes. The shoes that he wore when he was do, doing everything else in his life. God is just not one other thing you tick off in your daytimer. That's dating me, I know, James. As a leader, Joshua was set apart dedicated to God for a designated purpose, and that's what God was, was communicating. And that's true of every godly Christian leader. Everything else takes second place. Your primary allegiance, your desi designated purpose is to serve and obey God. God will not be used uh, as your agent. 
to get what you want, to accomplish your agenda, to actualize your plans and programs and priorities. You know, before the Lord, as Jesus Himself made clear, all our other commitments, all our other relationships, even our family relationships, goals, priorities, and passions, those are not non-negotiables. The only non-negotiable is the Lord Himself. A godly leader leads out of exclusive worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A godly leader plays to an audience of one. That's the second one. First, godly leaders aren't in command. Second, godly leaders lead out of worship. And now third, and finally, godly leaders use methods the world doesn't value. This comes from those first five verses of Joshua 6. It sort of sets up how the battle is going to go. And you have to wonder what the citizens of Jericho were thinking and saying about the, the weird and unorthodox way the Hebrew people were coming up against their fortified city. For that matter, you have to wonder if uh, what the Hebrew people were thinking and perhaps saying behind Joshua's back. I'm, I'm sure there was doubt. I'm, I'm sure there was questioning. I'm sure there was scorn. How are we going to conquer Jericho uh, by marching in circles when our soldiers are being led by priests with trumpets? What? Okay. How's our strategy going to work against the best military technology of the day? This is crazy. We're weak. We're pathetic. We're nuts. We're going to lose. You might have heard something like that recently in our own day. But godly Christian leaders lead in God's way with God's methods and God's weapons, even when the world or other Christians think it's crazy, weak, and impractical. That's exactly what Joshua did, and that's what Clarence Jordan did. Clarence Jordan, the Christian civil rights leader, Baptist pastor in Georgia, in the 1950s and 1960s, the man behind the cotton patch version of the New Testament, and the cotton patch gospel. It, he met with terrific opposition, horrible opposition, in his gospel-centered, Christ-centered effort to bring about racial reconciliation in the United States, particularly the United States South. There's horrific vandalism awful violence, killings, economic boycotts, crosses burned in their front yards. And Jordan had to keep reminding his people, Christians, look, we don't give up, we don't relocate, and we don't, we don't change up our arsenal. God has given us our weapons and we keep fighting with God's weapons nobody else's 
And those weapons are worship and love, peacemaking, and service. Now, why did he have to keep reminding his people of that? They were Christians. They'd know that. Well, it's because, as Philip Yancey put it in, in, in his telling of, of, of Clarence Jordan's story, those Christian weapons seem so impotent, impotent against bombs, bullets, and boycotts. But, and it's not a spoiler alert, those weapons won. Wasn't overnight. It wasn't without cost, terrible cost, but they won. They followed in the footsteps of Jesus. A godly Christian leader resists the allure of the world's glitz, the world's glamour, and the world's power. A Christian leader knows it's not ultimately about the best technology or the best funded program. You see, the godly leader leads differently because he knows he has better resources and stronger weapons even though the world and even some Christians don't get it. The Apostle Paul got it. It's about the weakness of preaching. It's about the glacially slow but glacially powerful work of discipling and teaching. Right? Glaciers work slow. Don't even see them move. But after they've moved, they've, they've made mountains. The church of Jesus Christ is about the, the glacially powerful work of making mountain people. Preaching, teaching, discipling. It's about evangelism, getting the good news out about Jesus Christ to our neighbors. It's about giving instead of amassing. It's about serving rather than being served. It's about seeking the good of others rather than ourselves. It's about faithfully parenting our children. It's about transforming this world by growing God's kingdom. Transforming culture one life at a time as the Holy Spirit does only the work He can do. But amazingly, He uses you and me in His project. Close with this. How do we know that will really work? How can we really be confident when the church and we in the church seem so impotent as over against what the world throws at us. How do we know we'll win and not lose? The answer, of course, is found in the commander of the army of the Lord. If you haven't guessed yet, I believe he's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's certainly divine, right? Joshua uh, falling on his face uh, before him and, and, and those words, same words spoken uh, out of the burning bush would suggest that this, this is not just a mere human commander. 
And this pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus as he was standing there before Jericho, he was brandishing a sword. He was a threat. And the beautiful thing about this, the way this story ends, of course, is that he didn't use that sword against Joshua. He didn't use it against his own people, even though they would deserve it. They did deserve it, and they would deserve it over and over again. The smoke was still rising from a defeated Jericho when the, when the people began to, to already rebel against the commands of the Lord. But centuries later, that commander would reappear in our time and space again, this time coming as a baby in Bethlehem, who would grow up to ultimately grow up ultimately and willing to ultimately and willingly allow that sword, his own sword, the sword of God's justice, to pierce him instead of you and me. You know, maybe the most telling thing that Jesus ever said about leadership, he said either in or around Jericho, interestingly enough, when he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to, serve, to, to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. It's Matthew 20. Friends, real godly leadership has its roots right there in the atonement in the serving of Jesus to the point of death. And that is the call of the godly leader. That is what godly leadership looks like. It's not a power play, but it's costly service. And we know as we engage in that kind of leadership, as we follow Jesus, we're going to fail because we're not following the teachings of a dead Jesus. We are walking in the footsteps of a living Jesus for in vindication of all that He accomplished in His life and in His death. God raised Him from the dead, friends. He is risen. And so God will do the same for you. Our victory is certain. The only thing uncertain is time. The event is certain. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your gift of godly leaders. Thank You for the encouragement we see in a world of racked by turmoil. All the encouragement that we see as You are raising up the next generation to lead in Your kingdom. John Kong is just one example of your work in calling up new leaders in your church. For that we're thankful. And now be with us as we ordain and install him before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.